When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the subjects that we love and sometimes don't love so much in our beautiful game. I'm McGarry and with me is the Reverend Duncan Castles, Dr. Nay. Not to know, remember. And today, we've got lots to get through, including the latest on Newcastle United takeover, Manchester United's uh, second quarter accounts, as well as uh, some news on a Liverpool player who's out of contract, and, of course, the infamous and famous, at the same time, Donkey Award to come. Duncan, Newcastle United, I think we can quite uh, genuinely claim that the podcast has led the way with news on the Saudi Arabia-led takeover of the St James's Park Club. Since they submitted um, their bid along with approval uh, for the owners and directors to the Premier League on April 9th, we've had not very much they expected. We expected this process of due diligence to take four weeks. It's now six. The national newspaper, The Sun, uh, claimed this morning the deal was done, approval had been given. That has been denied off the record by both the Premier League and the buyers. So where exactly are we at with the Toon Army and the Saudi Arabian takeover? Well, I think that's the important thing here is that um, there's been a number of reports this week, including in, in Saudi Arabia media, with Saudi Arabian TV channel, that uh, approval was has been granted by the Premier League and that the takeover would go through. Um, I've checked those reports with the buyers on multiple occasions this week and every time the answer has been, we'd like that to be the case, but it isn't the case. We have not been informed um, and neither have we been tipped off by the Premier League that approval will come through. Now, it is not the case that they think that the deal will not go through. The expectation from the buyer's side is that approval will come. Um, there is a degree of concern, but uh, the, the information I'm giving is, I've been given is that uh, obviously they, on a deal of this nature, there was a great deal of preparation work done um, and the, the buyers went through the potential objections and potential trigger points that the Premier League could come up with um, and, and things that would be contested, such as Saudi Arabia's human rights record, such as um, the piracy of BN's broadcasting rights in Middle East and, and North Africa, which uh, has been uh, led uh, by a Saudi Arabian satellite uh, channel and, and resulted in the Premier League itself attempting to take legal action in Saudi Arabia to prevent that piracy from, from going on. Um, and also the idea that uh, that because um, Newcastle would be 
bought effectively by the Saudi Arabian state by 80% going to PIF, the uh, Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund, that they would have influence over Sheffield United, who are owned by a relative of uh, South uh, Saudi Arabia's crown prince. They went through that, calculated the risk, and their calculation was that none of those objections would be sufficient to pre prevent Premier League from granting approval. They're confident that a business plan, which is part of the, the check process the Premier League has to go through, is to assess whether the, the finances are in place, not only to purchase the club, but to run it um, without uh, heavy losses for a, a long period of time. Confident that there would be no problem with that, which is, uh, as you'd expect, given the uh, the amount of capital that is at the hands of um PIF to invest in the club uh, should they be granted approval. Um, I think that the process here is important to understand and that I'm told is that the Premier League don't actually communicate directly with the buyers. What they do is they communicate with Newcastle United itself and they, they all um, queries on the bid are sent to Newcastle United to be forward forwarded to PCP, um, Amanda Stavely's company, for her to handle on behalf of, of the, the buyers. So any communication on approval would go first to Newcastle United, which would then be um, immediately, you would expect, communicated to PCP and PIF. Another point to note is when and if approval comes through, we should not expect an immediate public announcement from Newcastle United or the buyers that the deal has been completed because there will be a, a period of time required um, for, for money to be transferred from the buyers to Mike Ashley to conclude the deal. So that could take, I'm told, three to four days after notification of approval to Newcastle United for it to be formally announced. But what they're consistent on is nothing has come through to them yet. They do not expect anything this week. They're hopeful that it will come through next week. They're saying that their guidance is what they're hearing is that one of the factors is project restart. So the Premier League have obviously been preoccupied by their attempts to get football um, restarted in England and get the current season finished. And that has... Uh, interfered with the process of making a final decision on whether Saudi Arabia should be allowed to, to buy the club. Another thing I think that's interesting here is that because you've had this extended period um, and you've had a huge amount of coverage, far more coverage than you would normally get of a takeover because no football is being played and it is effectively the biggest news story in English football at present. We've seen the, the criticisms of the takeover explored in detail, and there are substantial criticisms uh, and important criticisms. But because PIF, PCP, and the Rubin brothers are in the, the process of being judged by the Premier League, they have been instructed that they cannot say anything publicly until a decision is made. And that means that they have not been able to respond to the criticisms 
um, and the, the various arguments that Saudi Arabia should not be allowed to control a Premier League club. I think what is probably interesting to Newcastle United fans is it's not that they don't want to respond and it's not that they don't feel they have um, strong counter-arguments. It's just that they have to adhere to the uh, restrictions being placed upon them by the Premier League not to speak um, about the takeover until and a decision is made on approval either way. Um, they are, of course, preparing responses and will make those responses when they're able to do so. I think that there's also been a suggestion that because they're preparing these things um, and they are readying uh, press conferences um, for the announcement, that that indicates it's very close. Um, I asked about that and I was told we've, we've been prepared, we've been doing that, we've been getting ready for announcement for months now. The, the process, the, the, the media um, handling um, that will go forth once they are granted approval to buy the club is something uh, that has a, had a long lead time to it and a long strategy to it. So don't associate um, their, their work in that area with the idea that they've got a signal that the deal will be approved and they're getting ready to go. The base message from them is we expect this to go through. We don't think the Premier League can find a justification within its rule book to prevent us from taking over that club. So they're confident, but there's definitely a sense of concern uh, that it's taken longer than it should have. And, and as we told you in the transfer podcast last week, there, that concern has, be, has been there for a while. And, and I, I understand that in conversations with um, certain individuals that the, the uh, prospective buyers are looking to hire to work um, for Newcastle United should they get control of the club. Those, that, that sense of nervousness has been uh, evident. Um, so I think we basically everyone has to wait and see whether the Premier League will approve, whether they will take the uh, the step um, of approving the most controversial takeover we've seen in Premier League history, because they're at the degree of objection to this um, and the range of areas in which the, the objection has been based, not just on human rights, but, but also on influencing other parties within the Premier League. And most importantly, from a financial perspective, for the Premier League on the piracy of, of uh, the league's television rights is greater than, than anything we've seen before. So when should the Premier League decide to approve? It will be continue to be controversial. Should they decide, no, we're not going to let this happen, I don't think that will be the end of the, the matter either. And uh, I would expect that... Um, were the Premier League to say, no, we're not going to allow this to go through, you would see legal action from the, the parties involved in the transaction to uh, interrogate the Premier League rules and suggest and argue that they had not been correctly applied in this case and the takeover should have been approved. Well, having spoken to three very senior administrators in uh, Premier League clubs in the last 24 hours, Duncan, um, my information uh, in terms of guidance from them was certainly in accordance with what uh, you have just explained to us uh, on the two major factors, i.e. timing and the objections possible and real to any takeover. 
first of all, time of any announcement. Um, absolutely the case from a PR point of view that the Premier League would not allow an announcement to be made on the takeover becoming uh, before there is a, an announcement on Project Restart and the resumption of football in England. That would be seen, and I quote, putting the cart before the horse, given this is the single most uh, critical situation in the history of English football and certainly in the Premier League's short history. On the second case, in terms of objections from Premier League clubs, yes, there have been. Those Premier League clubs have been given the opportunity and have taken it to voice their concerns, both in Premier League meetings and in writing to the Premier League board, who will be the arbiters of the decision to say yes or no to the bid. Um, I'm told that the biggest one was the subject of piracy and the infringement of the television broadcast rights, which, of course, are worth billions of pounds. And the general consensus was it would be easier for the Premier League to have some kind of administrative control over Saudi Arabia in the sense of having a member club owned by the nation state than it would be to reject the bid on the basis of the piracy, at which point that's a provocative action and that could make the situation worse. So basically it's a win-win for the Premier League. You take the money in terms of the money that's going to be generated and invested uh, from the takeover of Newcastle, you also say in your offer to approve their application in the bid, and that is you must sort out the issue of be out uh, stealing, uh, allegedly, the broadcasting um, rights of Qatar's be-in sports in the Middle East and, and North African region, because that that is a major problem for us. If you want to become a partner broadcaster, come to the table legally like everyone else on the next round of talks, and we can talk about it. But for the moment, uh, if you're going to be a member of this club, then you have to obey the rules of this club. And the club I'm talking about, of course, is the 20 stakeholders of the Premier League. So I, like you, expect it still to be approved, and probably within the next week maybe 10 days, and maybe even shorter than that, if we get an announcement about resumption and project restart after next Tuesday's Premier League stakeholders meeting, I think you'll find it, quite, it may follow quite quickly. Um, as everyone and anyone in PR knows, uh, if you go to announce something uh, big and it gets you the big, bold, great headline, football's back, then if you want to announce something which is a bit less uh, happy and a more controversial, do it quickly because it's going to be overwhelmed by the, uh, the, over the news that affects everyone, rather just Newcastle United fans. So what about you, Duncan? Do you have any idea about the timing? Uh, would you like to give us an idea what your, your interpretation is? Look, the Premier League have the ability to say no to PIF and PCP here. They, they, the rule book um, states that if in the opinion of the board of directors... Um, an owner or director has committed acts which would be deemed illegal within the UK, then they can um, disapprove of them becoming an owner director of a Premier League club. So the scope is there in the rule book to do it. The controversy and the legal challenge, um, and you're talking about taking on a, um, a, a nation with immense financial 
might is something that the, the Premier League has always shied away from in the past. If you look at the history of um, takeovers and purchases, the Premier League has been probably more open to the purchase of its clubs and the handover and sale of its clubs than, than any other of the major European leagues. Um, and they haven't raised objections to quite a number of dubious individuals who have um, taken control of clubs in the past. So it would be a major change in direction for the Premier League to do so. The other side of it, and and this I think is echoed by conversations I've had um, with the buyers, is if you look at it pragmatically uh, the, from the perspective of, of TV rights, it is, as you say, um, if you turn down Saudi Arabia, you, you risk antagonizing them and you risk the piracy problem becoming greater. If you bring Saudi Arabia into the camp, you have allies inside the tent to end the piracy in Saudi Arabia in the region and also potentially to put more money into the league in terms of competing with Qatar and be in sports for those television rights in the area. So you, you could win both ways. You reduce the piracy costs and you increase um, the revenue you take from television rights in that area going forward. Plus, because of the coronavirus pandemic, there is a need for injection of money in the Premier League. So the idea of having a club who will put substantial monies into the transfer market um, whenever the transfer market reopens again and start buying some players from other Premier League clubs um, and, and put money into the hands of the owners and, and uh, the accountants at those Premier League clubs to at a time when some of them are in severe um, financial di difficulty in terms of liquidity is attractive. So looking at it from the history and looking at looking at it from the way the Premier League usually takes these decisions, I can understand the confidence that the buyers have. And, and to reiterate, they have, I think, game planned all of this from an early, early stage. Um, they were aware of the risks. They were aware that this would bring a great deal of additional scrutiny to Saudi Arabia within the UK and international press. And I'm told that Saudi Arabia was prepared for that um, and, and, and felt that this, this purchase was worthwhile getting involved in, regardless of that scrutiny, which, which I think emphasizes, one, the importance of it, and two, their expectation that it would be approved. Well, as regular listeners to the Transfer Window podcast know, we make it our business as good journalists to hold clubs and football to account. And that often means we have to hold them to their accounts as well. Not necessarily the most sexy uh, part of football, but a very important one. And of course, Duncan Manchester United published a set of accounts yesterday, which gave us the first indication um, in a practical sense of how the coronavirus epidemic and the um, closing down of football in terms of no match days has affected probably well one of the biggest clubs in the world. Yeah, that's the, their, their third quarter accounts for the current season. Um, very bad headline numbers, um, posting losses of £22.8 million for the quarter. And this is only till 31st of March. Therefore, um, I think that the Premier League was suspended on the 13th of March. So you're only really talking about two weeks of, of missing 
um, live football during this period. Um, a massive reduction in broadcast revenue, drop of 51.7%. Um, a small uh, drop in match day revenue of 8.2%. But obviously, the, the big hit to match day revenue will come in the second quarter, the current quarter, when there has been no football played and is unlikely to be much football played. I think the Premier League are looking at a restart date of the 26th of June, so they might get one, possibly two matches in by the end of that uh, um, first, uh, second quarter and the end of the financial year. But um, it, it, the numbers are going to be very bad for the next quarter as indicated by Ed Woodward, Executive Vice Chairman, and by Cliff Beatty, the Chief Financial Officer. Um, they say they expect a rebate of around £20 million to the Premier League for broadcast monies, even if the season is completed behind closed doors. So that's their estimate of how much it's, it's going to cost Manchester United individually as a club in terms of uh, broadcast revenue that they'll have to pay back to the broadcasters. Um, but they say that that's the best estimate at this stage based on discussions between the Premier League and the broadcasters, which shows you that this is not a resolved matter and also shows you that it could become substantially worse if those ghost games behind closed doors games are not um, played or not played in, in full. Um, some other numbers which uh, Manchester United fans will not be impressed by is that the, the net debt of the club has gone up by 42.2% to £429.1 um, Yet, the Glazers are still paying themselves dividends um, and paying uh, uh, some of their investors dividends. So £11.3 million of dividends were taken out of the club despite it posting um, a loss of over twice that amount for the last quarter. Um, Duncan, they are... Sorry, just let, let me come in there, Duncan. Just I want to make a point, which I think my fans will definitely be asking, and we know a lot of them are uh, followers. What the hell are the Glazers doing taking money out of the club? They're already multi-maybe billionaires and a position where the rest of the country is being on furlough. Even players are taking wage deferrals, wage cuts. There's Eight million people who are currently not working in this country as record unemployment for the last 20 years. And yet people who don't need the money are taking money out of Manchester United. There'd be a lot of Manchester fans who currently are struggling even to put food on the table for their families. And yet these guys are still milking the club for cash. Yeah, indeed. Um, I guess their argument would be and this is something that Ed Woodward emphasised a lot, was that Manchester United had put a lot of money into the community during the, the pandemic. They hadn't furloughed their own staff. I think they're continuing to pay um, match day um, casual staff, regardless of games not being played. They have uh, uh, put a, a large degree of support into local NHS and, and uh, paid for money um, to provide meals. To, to people in the Manchester area. So they, they've certainly um, not cut back in the way that other Premier League clubs have done. And they've, they've spent considerable amounts of money um, it, it, on their employees and uh, in the, the local community. But that doesn't justify taking money out of a club, um, which uh, 
is obviously going to um, have to weather a greater financial storm going forward. Um, and I, I suppose another part of the argument might be that they they have 90 or they had 90 million of cash balance at the end of this period, as of 31st of March. So there, there is a, a buffer there in terms of, of cash to um, allow the business to keep going through a difficult period. But um, to get a sense of the amount of money that the Glazers have taken out of the club, um, there were increased finance and interest charges um, reported for the first quarter, uh, which take the total amount of finance and interest charges paid by Manchester United since the takeover to £827.8 million. Um, so basically, the, the money that, that was required to buy the club um, has been taken out through debt from Manchester United's revenue, um, allowing the Glazers to avoid um, putting very much of their own capital into that original purchase. While, of course, the Glazers have been taking dividends, while, of course, they've been taking uh, substantial director fees. Um, and that and running a debt up of almost £500 million as well. Yeah, well, a net debt £429 million. Just to put it into context, £827 million of finance and interest charges isn't far off the amount of money it would take you to buy Newcastle United um, over a decade and a half later from, from the point in which the Glazers bought Manchester United. Not once, but almost three times over. That That's the, the scale of, of money that has been drained out of Manchester United's uh, revenue-creating abilities during the period of the Glazer takeover. And, okay, you have to credit their management of the club in the terms of they have increased the revenues substantially by uh, by increasing their, their their power as commercial agents, and they they produce more commercial revenue than any other English club. So, so there are aspects in which they've they've uh, improved Manchester United's um, financial performance. But in the round, there's no doubt that they've extracted uh, a huge amount of capital from the club. Uh, taken it away from the playing field in a period in which, of course, their, their city rivals, Manchester City, have had far more than that amount in, invested into them, put directly onto the playing field or the uh, into the coaching staff and the infrastructure of the club. And Manchester City have gone way beyond them in terms of being the predominant force in English football, winning Premier League titles, and, uh, and playing the best football in, in the country. Well, we had the MP and former leader of the Commons Committee for um, Cultural Sport, Damon Collins, say last night, Duncan, that his understanding is that between 10 and 14 EFL clubs are on the brink of administration. Um, we said on the podcast um, this week already that around and 10 championship clubs are in a similar position and are indeed up for sale, mainly trying to attract venture capital or private equity firms. And we also know from our information that at least four Premier League clubs are looking to financially reconstruct on the basis of the lack of cash liquidity just to pay the running costs day to day. So football is in this parlous, parlous state below the super rich. And again, my point is the Glazers Still, and Manchester United indeed are still paying dividends to their owners and investors. 
um, at a time when uh, even Gary Neville, the Manchester United legend, was um, demanding that football sort itself out rather than looking for a government handout. And clearly it would be down to clubs like Manchester United and Manchester City who have the majority of the riches to lead that kind of charge towards um, saving clubs from extinction and making sure that clubs survive so that when we do come out of lockdown and football gets played again, there are still uh, a rich heritage of clubs in England. Well, I think what's interesting from the the, the call that um, Ed Woodward and some of his fellow directors made with investors yesterday following the announcement of the results was that both Ed Woodward and Richard Arnold seemed extremely keen to pass on a message that Manchester United was a resilient club, um, financially strong, that would be able to survive this crisis. Um, I think Richard Arnold came up with this um, memorable phrase, which was, over the course of our 142-year history, this club has endured two world wars, the global depression, the credit crunch, and the previous pandemic. Resilience is a core part of the club's DNA, both on and off the pitch. He, he, he then kind of uh, went on to talk about how they used the time off to, um, to uh, take advantage of the temporary pause and normal routine to creatively attack our operational approach with disruptive innovations across all of their business lines and emphasise that they could still make lots of money um, as long as football was on the TV because um, the, the majority of the revenue wasn't based on what he called in-stadium activities beyond the football. Um, but there did seem a sense in which Woodward and Arnold were very keen to reassure the big institutional investors who have bought um, shares which do, do not hold um, voting rights, um, do not actually control the, the, uh, the, the ownership of the club, but are important to them from the perspective of the, the financial performance of the club and, and uh, keeping the share uh, price high. They wanted to assure them that United were going to survive and were in a strong financial position. At the same time as they were withdrawing their financial guidance for the, for the full year, which remember was a, their guidance was going to be for a significant reduction on the previous year's results. So that they were going to drop to a level where you might have seen Liverpool overtake them uh, as having the, uh, the highest revenue uh, in the Premier League. Liverpool were getting within range of them. And they also said they didn't want to talk about what the financial outlook would be for 2020-21 uh, financial year, that they wanted to wait and see how Project Restart went. Um, whether it happened when they'd be playing football again and what the revenues were like um, once uh, they, they started playing ghost games. United are in a stronger position than most, as you say, but even with just a couple of weeks of no football being played, you see the substantial hit they took to their revenues and the club swinging from profit to loss. So um, the there's obviously going to be a limitation as to as to how long even a Manchester United can sustain a period where football matches aren't played. Well, if any of your listeners know what an innovational disruption 
which allows Manchester United to make more revenue while football is still on the television, please let us know at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I'll make my first uh, declaration. Manchester United popcorn, perhaps, which you could munch away while watching those games, ghost games uh, on television. Uh, Manchester United paint, with which you could paint your walls. Well, I think that may already exist. Um, anyway, uh, please, we'll be doing qu- your questions answered on next week's pod. If you've got any suggestions, please send them to us. Now, we're going to take football from the macro to the micro level now and how things affect individual players in these uncertain times. And one player who has been uh, an exceptional servant to Liverpool Football Club finds himself facing, Duncan, um, a very, very critical and very difficult decision with regards to what he does next. And the player I'm talking about is the um, England midfielder, Adam Lalana, who is out of contract on June the 30th, has um, recently recovered from a serious injury, but now faces a prospect of either terminating his contract on June the 30th, which would mean he most likely would never play for Liverpool again, given the way that it appears the resumption of the Premier League season will will um, uh, be played out, or or he does extend his contract voluntarily for another month or six weeks, does the bus tour, collects his medal, and then takes up a position with one of three offers we understand he has, one abroad and two in England, which of course will be the final contract of his career. I suspect this could be, and as a free agent, you also expect it to be very lucrative as well. This is a very difficult one, Duncan, for any player who's out of contract, I think, on June 3rd. David Silva's another one at Manchester City. Um, although Silva, we understand, does have uh, a plan, if you like, definitely what he wants to do. But non-professional footballers, you have to make a choice between potentially putting yourself in danger of contracting COVID-19 if you could go back to training and certainly back to playing um, the possibility of further injury given the fact we most players don't believe that they'll have enough uh, preparation time to restart football even in the last week of June uh, but also within Lana's case um, he's made 15 appearances for Liverpool in the last season well the season up to date um, quite a lot of them have come off the bench um, is he going to well is he going going to be a bit part player in this team most likely if everyone else is fit and ops elects to play so he's what he's putting himself at risk of seems to me to be unequal to you know what he has to gain from terminating his contract on June the 30th and t- cutting his ties with Liverpool and moving on to the next chapter but he's also in a position where the club he plays for are 25 points clear in the Premier League and he's only two wins to win it this is a player who hasn't won the Premier League medal either. It's, it's a dreadful position to well, you say it's a dreadful position to be in. It's it's a good position to be in, but it's a dreadful choice to have to make. Yeah, I I think I think it's different from David Silva in that um, David Silva has made most of his money from the game, and I think he he can he can play those additional months, take the additional the, the risk of those additional months without it making a, a massive difference to him um, going forward. Whereas Lalana, this will be the opportunity for the last significant contract of his career. Um, as you say, he has those, those substantial offers available to him. 
he's in a position that a lot of um, players who are whose contracts are due to end on the 30th of June are in now, which is do you come back and play um, and take the risk of uh, suffering a, a potentially a career-ending injury or certainly an injury that would make you a far less um, attractive prospect as a free agent? Say you, you had a, a cruciate ligament injury or an Achilles tendon injury which you are more likely to do. The risks are higher because of the way that Project Restart has been set up. There's a long delay without playing games. You have abbreviated uh, training regime and a very unusual training regime, which a lot of players are are complaining about um, in their, their, their first days back, saying they, I've heard of players saying that they could have had a better workout in their back garden than the ones um, that they've been allowed to do with social distancing in, in small groups and the on the pitches this week, but coming back in in a period where they don't actually know how long they have to prepare um, until they will be playing games. And Wayne Rooney made a very good point in our uh, in our friend Jonathan Northcroft's um, column that he does with Wayne last week Sunday Time is that the that the um, it's almost back to front. What you would expect as a player is a date on which you're going to play, I expect as a coach is a date in which you, you you need the team to come back and build the training regime so you get them into peak fitness for that date. Whereas at present, they'll come back um, with uh, the Premier League looking at how that goes um, and works as, as a, a new training regime and then deciding subsequently what the, uh, the resumption and the play date will be. But all of these things, plus the lack of full medical attention, um, plus the pressure they'll be under to deliver results when they finally go on the field at the at the, the, the decisive end of the season, results in a greater risk of injury. And if you're Adam Lallana, you go and you, you play game for Liverpool and you, you suffer an Achilles or um, an ACL that, that costs you at least six months recovery time, does the club that has offered you a contract, um, which is facing, like all the other clubs, financial difficulties because of coronavirus, do they go through with signing you um, when they don't know what they're going to get at the end of, of that period? Um, and, and I think in his case, it's going to be probably an even harder decision because he has that opportunity to win the Premier League title. But also I think there will be a degree of external pressure on him um, to make that decision in the right way. So you can imagine where he to say, no, I'm not going to play. This is too much of a risk. Um, I just can't afford to take it on um, and jeopardize the possibility of the, uh, of the, the long-term contract that's been presented to me by another club. You can imagine that, uh, that that will go down badly with certain Liverpool supporters. Who um, and there is a you know there's a group of Liverpool supporters who are pushing very hard that the season is completed um, because they want to to see the title awarded at, at the end of a full season of fixtures, so that people cannot criticise the the first Premier League title win of Liverpool and for one of their own players to say actually um, this is too risky I don't want to be involved would not help that case that's that you know it's a it's a war effectively that's going on in the Premier League at the moment between players and clubs who do not like the the way 
which project restart has been shaped up do not like it as a decision-making mechanism on their club's futures, whether they remain in the Premier League or not, uh, whether they, they gain Champions League football or not. And other clubs who just want it played to get the money in um, and in Liverpool's case, so that they can have the title uh, in something approximating normal fashion. Of course, you got included in that group of players who are contractors to Chelsea, William and Pedro, although Olivier Giroud took an option not to extend his contract by a year on Thursday this week, as did Willie Caballero. But again, this is a difficult one for players, and both of those players are also like Lallana in their 30s, and so looking at perhaps one more contract before... Uh, retirement beckons. Um, I agree with you, Duncan, with regards to Liverpool fans and their desire uh, to... Um, you'll, you'll never have an asterisk alone uh, by their title um, win after 30 years. And But again, the only two wins from nine remaining fixtures to uh, guarantee that they've won the, the Premier League um, without, uh, it, even if it is then not concluded. So it would be very interesting to see what Lallana's decision is, um, after, especially after Jurgen Klopp was very clear uh, earlier this week when he said that the players are here were 100% of their free will. And I told every player that the, if they decided not because they felt it was unsafe or they weren't comfortable with it, then they should make that known and there would be no recriminations, no um, fingers pointed at them. I'm just paraphrasing here, but uh, that was the general message. Speaking, of course, of the pandemic, um, Duncan, you've been slightly vexed again by the testing regime um, that football is using in terms of trying to protect the players and indeed the staff, the medical staff as well. Um, up until now, we're only, we're only three days into, uh, four days into Project Restart in terms of phase one of training. Yeah, I, I think um, it's just looking at the detail of, of the tests that, the, that are central to this project restart. I mean, that the if you listen to people's arguments about Premier League footballers who are uncertain about playing or have refused to train, such as Troy Deeney, the response is that um, they're from from numerous people is that their work environment is the safest in the country, and um, the reason it's so safe is because the players will be t- tested on a regular basis, so they will know that they are not training with um, individuals who have coronavirus or playing against individuals who have coronavirus. So so these tests are very important to convince the players that it's safe to play. And I think they're very important from the Premier League and and also the UK government's perspective to convince the public that this is a, a coherent, safe plan. But if you look at the detail of the tests and also... The, the people who are conducting the test for the Premier League, there are, there are some question marks there. So um, a company called Prenetics has been hired to provide the tests. Uh, they um, are actually using another company called the Doctor's Laboratory um, to actually deliver the test. But Prenetics chief executive, um, Avi Lazaro, um, has something of a checkered past. It was, it was uh, reported this week that... One of his previous companies, um, which was operating in America and using a a set of uh, um, mobile phone apps to uh, allow users 
to check whether they had skin cancer or not. These apps were called Mole Detective. Agreed to a suspended um, $58,623 penalty um, after the US Federal Trade Commission uh, made a claim against them that, um, they, that the company had been falsely advertising the effectiveness of those apps. So those apps don't exist anymore. The defense of, of the company involved is that uh, Lazaro accepted that penalty to end the court case um, and there was no admission of guilt. Uh, and he, he did so to avoid um, expensive uh, legal costs. But it, this is uh, an individual who's working in a, in a uh, the medical area before and, um, and has a a suspended penalty against his name for a product that was designed to check uh, whether an individual was healthy or not. Um, as to the test itself, he is on record as saying that they have a diagnostic sensitivity of 98%, specificity of 100%, therefore the total accuracy being approximately 98.8%. Um, Actually, what does that mean? It means that you can expect out of the uh, 800 tests that Premier League clubs will are allowed to take, it's um, 40 tests per club uh, in a, a round of testing. So um, you, you can do, you get two rounds of testing per week and in each round there will be 800 tests. You would expect to get 10 false results in amongst that um, set of results, which obviously means that they're, they're, you, you do not have 100% certainty that, um, that the tests have uh, eliminated all the individuals carrying coronavirus within a squad or within a, within a, a team unit. Um, in fact, the, the TDL website, where it describes um, the the test they use in detail, it says, as with all viral PCR assays, patients with very low viral loads are less likely to be detected. Negative or not detected results do not preclude infection with the SARS-CoV-2 virus and should not be the sole basis of a patient treatment management or public health decision. So on their own website, they're saying that these um, tests should not be the sole basis for uh, a public health decision. And while Premier League clubs are not using them as a sole basis because they're asking about symptoms as well, they are uh, placing a lot of emphasis on their reliability um, and their ability to protect players. The measures the Premier League are advising clubs to take if an individual tests positive is for them to isolate for seven days. Um, and that compares with World Health Organization guidance that you should isolate for 14 days if you um, are if you test positive for coronavirus. So there's a question mark over why the Premier League are choosing that shorter uh, time limit. And the guidance I have is that is because the government have advised that seven days is sufficient. The, the final problem with the, the setup at present is that the tests require 48 hours um, for the results to come through. So if a player or a coach tests positive um, on one of these uh, coronavirus assessments, he will not be extracted from the group until at, at, 
up to 48 hours after he has had the disease and perhaps much longer because you don't know the period in what previous to the test in which he's had the disease. So those individuals are in amongst the team unit, potentially affect, infecting um, other members of the team until the point in which they're self-isolated. So it does not seem to be a foolproof way of guaranteeing that players and coaches are um, not going to be exposed to individuals who have coronavirus while engaging in a contact sport. And, and because of that, I, I fully understand why individuals like Troy Deeney, when they've had the ability to question um, the medical advisors of the Premier League over the protocols, have said they're not capable of answering all of my questions. I'm not prepared to take the risk. Um, I'm not going to train under these circumstances. And uh, I think the Premier League has a substantial problem on its hands here, convincing all of its footballers that they have come up with a way of, of um, safeguarding their health while returning to playing football. Well, as one Premier League player said to me yesterday, Duncan, if I go into a phase three training uh, full body contact um, situation or, or even a football match itself, if it resumes... Uh, and there's an undetected infected player on the pitch, seven, eight, nine of us, who knows, could end up contracting the virus over the course of a few minutes or up to 94 minutes if it's a game. So uh, I think quite right to be questioning the safety um, aspects which still hang over the return to football, which of course we all want, but doesn't necessarily mean it will be safe. We want to end today's podcast with one of the most poetic lines I think we've heard from a football person, uh, which revolves around the pandemic. And that was the Spain manager, Luis Enrique, who told uh, a Spanish radio station this week that his concern about playing games behind closed doors would be, and I quote this, playing football without fans is sadder than dancing with your sister. Wonderful way to put it. Um, as someone who's danced with my sister at a wedding once, um, yeah, I, I get his point. I get his point. <laughs> so today's donkey is going to be the Lewis Enrique Award for things that are even sadder than playing behind closed doors or indeed dancing with your sister. Uh, I'm just going to open up the golden envelope here. I have two sisters, by the way. I'll just let you all know. I won't dance with one of them. Uh, so, first nomination is Jamie Carricker for that infamous incident on the M62, uh, which Duncan will describe when he decides whether not to award Jamie, I think, with his third donkey. Uh, of course, we couldn't go anywhere on this one if it's about sisters without having Neymar Jr., um, who basically does everything with his sister um, and, of course, never misses her birthday. I'm sure there's lots of dancing with his sister every year when he misses matches with that. And the last one, we don't normally have a Scottish uh, representative on the nominations list, but we're going to have Rangers as a nomination uh, in this particular one for their um, rather pathetic attempts to stop Celtics nine in a row at any cost, including offering to pay for an independent inquiry, an oxymoron if ever I heard one. Duncan, over to you. Um. Yeah, strong case for Rangers, um, given that uh, 
as you say, desperate attempts to thwart the wishes of the majority of Scottish football that the season be ended, um, that they uh, were able to reduce their costs and that they were to get their uh, television and prize money distributions from the Central League and uh, and proposing that the answer to uh, to that throt issue of, uh, of whether the season should be ended and uh, Celtic should be uh, awarded the title was an independent inquiry that they paid for themselves. Um, yeah, there were some extraordinary th- things said during that entire process, but that was one of the one of the best of them. Um, Jamie Carragher, yeah, spitting at a, a young female Manchester United fan um, as a response to uh, his team. Uh, failing to deliver a result at Old Trafford, uh, certainly not uh, one of the highlights of uh, of his uh, post-football uh, player career. But I think uh, when it's a word of this nature, dancing with your sister, as you say, it has to go to Neymar, um, the man who not only um, dances with his sister, but insists on never, ever playing any football for the clubs who handsomely reward him for his services uh, when it's his sister's birthday so he can disappear off and, and celebrate um, with a with a with a, a fine dance and, and whatever else goes on in the, the Neymar household around birthday parties uh, each and every year. Wonderful and well deserved to the young Brazilian forward. Um, and I'm sure he will feature again in the donkeys at some point. Uh, we want to remind you to join the debate with us, whether it be on Dancing With Your Sister. Please tell us your stories. As I said, we will be doing your questions answered next week. Uh, my wife actually told me about one of her friends um, this morning when I told her about the, the quote, and she said that he danced with his sister at his own wedding to the Muppets theme. Now, there's something both ironic and and <laughs> with pathos about that particular combination. Um Give us your dancing with your sister stories uh, if you if you wish to. Uh, send them to at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Duncan's on at Duncan Castles on Twitter. I am at Garbo SJ. We look forward to, to them. Uh, and also, of course, um, if you love the podcast, um, and we know you do, jump onto iTunes, give us a five-star review. Uh, we get more people into the community, and of course, that enhances everything about what we are trying to do. That's all for today's podcast. It's all left for me to say, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.